Oh, happy Friday, everybody. You made it to the end of the work week. Congratulations on that. We got some showers in the forecast, but the biggest shower, the deluge. We want to shower you with affection and gratitude as JR listeners who really stepped up yesterday for our colleague Mitch Album, and more importantly, for members, the neediest members of our community with this amazing Say Detroit Radiothon yielding more than $2 million and setting a new record. And it sounded like this. So now let's do our final tote board and see where we are for the 2023 Say Detroit Radiothon. The total is... Oh! Two million sixty-four thousand and fourteen dollars. Wow! We didn't just break one point eight. We broke two million dollars in a day. Uh, Jamie's here. Maria Osborne uh, agreed to just kind of hang around to chat on this Friday morning. I mean, there's such a good vibe to this, and there's such a great vibe to this community in the holiday season that they really open it up. In a time when people are struggling with inflation and don't have as much money in their pocketbooks to still donate to this cause like this, I think is impressive. I think we can always talk about inflation and I think we can always talk about how hard it is to make ends meet. No matter if the economy is going great or poorly, there's just a group of people that are always going to struggle to make ends meet for whatever reason there may be. I love the way they meet the needs of the community here. They meet people where they are. That's such an important thing. Well, there was an acknowledgement there, I think, on the part of our donors saying, hey, we get it uh, yeah. that, because we see it. But, you know, that means that we need to step up, too. And that means that we need to inflate our our generosity. And that, that there, there was some extreme generosity inflation extreme. yesterday. There uh, were some highlights. Of course, Matthew Stafford joined. He has been instrumental in that play center so he joins he donated donated money hugh jackman donated 50 grand tim allen donated twenty thousand dollars and how about tom goris of the pistons i mean he committed a lot of money three hundred fifty thousand and a hundred thousand to the play center so those were like the celebrities but i think just a ton of people donated 50 bucks 100 bucks and we got to well not we Mitch got to two million. Yeah, and, and just uh, so congratulations to Mitch, and we're so proud of him. Uh, but just as proud of our community, which steps up and takes care of those who need help. Um, this is going to be a difficult day, I think, for everybody because uh, we are going to be hearing, and a lot of stations will be streaming it live. Um, the sentencing hearing for the Oxford shooter. Uh, it was two years, uh, eight days ago. Uh, that we were on the air when we started to get word trickling in of a, a gunman event at Oxford High School. More than 40 people are expected to make their statements uh, to, to basically open their hearts and their wounds and share their pain to make sure that they find justice. The, the prospect of life without parole is on the table. i got to ask the two of you, if you were in the shoes of those people, could you maintain your composure? And and give a re, a reasonable statement. Um, I don't think I could. I don't know how I could keep from going over the table and and doing something terrible. Um, well, I mean, Lloyd played this week that soundbite of the woman who was attacked in the parking lot of Target. Mm-hmm. It's just like I think something comes over you. You know, you want to face your attacker and you want to have closure that way. And I think that's how people get the strength. I pray that this is cathartic for them. Right. Yeah. I, I, I feel that I, I would want to do it in memory of the person that I lost. And I think I would just tell myself, I got to pull this together. 
because of who I lost. Be respectful. If they, if yeah. they were standing, I'm doing this for them only uh, to make that impact statement. And your your acknowledgement that you just would like to jump over the desk and you know put your hands around their throat, I think that is so normal and and it's not what you should do. It's not justice. But it, no, but it is normal to feel that way. There's this concept of rehabilitation that they're going to argue, and whether or not he has the ability to be re- rehabilitated. I I'm struggling with this as a Christian and the idea of redemption and grace. But I also look at it and say, you offered nothing. You've admitted you're the demon. You had these incredibly detailed journals where you methodically laid out your plan and then you methodically executed it. You are a demon. I don't think demons can be rehabilitated. And I'm, I'm really struggling with this notion that that should even be on the table uh, because none of those victims were allowed that grace. This story in the free press with some of his journal entries is chilling and horrible. Mm-hmm. And horrifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not even going to read it because it's so but, upsetting. And then there's the other part where he says, uh, my life is worthless. Uh, I, I, I need help. And then you think that his parents read that. School officials read that. And nobody said, by the way, does he have the capacity to do himself or others harm? Is there a gun in the household? Nobody thought to ask that. Nobody thought to look at the bag. But that's the other part of it. It says we're not done with this yet. Nor should we be. Well, that's why the parents are on trial. Yep, and they're coming up January 23rd. And I'm with you, Guy. You know, redemption and grace. I I always like to think that's my North Star in my personal life. Yes. But it's it's hard to wrap your heart and mind around that when when you see what's happened here. And, you know, he says in his journals, I'm willing to accept this. And by the way, I'm not going to commit suicide because I want to see their suffering. Yeah, you want to see it. Uh, So, I mean, there's there's part of me that wants to see suffering. And and on his part, is that justice? That's not justice. That's vengeance. Um, So, yeah, I think we're all having some struggles with that. Uh, Michigan State University going to have an important Zoom meeting today to announce, we believe, at 8 a.m. this morning. Uh, a new president at that uh, esteemed university. Uh, it's a guy named Kevin uh, Guskowitz, who is the chancellor of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. No stranger to controversy, or I should say no stranger to handling controversies. He's kind of, by uh, circumstance, has been forced to be a crisis management specialist. But I got to ask you, I mean, did we get the best possible candidate given the state of the Board of Trustees up there. that's I've been wondering that same thing. And what will he bring to the table that the others have not, uh, that the other presidents have just been unable to overcome these hurdles? Well, they hired an outside search firm, so there's that. And those people are the ones that went out and looked for candidates. So you have to have some trust in that, right? Yeah, but but would candidates come forward thinking, oh, look at that, what's going on there with that board? I'm not getting involved in that. Who said we've... We've we've seen the blue the, the the blank show right and yeah. and we don't want part of that and I got to tell you in, in a close circle for Governor Whitmer if you want this man to succeed you need to step up and take care of what's happening on the board and you're the only person that has the capacity to do that if you want him to succeed and I know well, it's going to be difficult because there are others that are casting this as a race issue this was black on black harassment on that board yeah the board. The board is nuts, and we can talk about the board. But when it comes to this incoming president, a neuroscientist and mm-hmm. concussion researcher, he's built his career over 28 years at UNC Chapel Hill, 
He's got a doctoral degree in sports medicine, so he's certainly accomplished. If you've got a high school athlete or a college athlete, you can thank him for some of the concussion yeah. protocols that we have in place now. He helped to draft those with other colleagues and researchers. I right, and that. Michigan State has this, you know, they have such a big stake in this type of, in, in research in general. So I think this is going to be a feather in their cap and in that regard. But he's got so much more that he's going to have to deal with other than just that. Not to mention just a very bruised uh view that everyone has of Michigan State University. Oh. Their reputation has been so bruised. Well, it's six presidents since the NASA oh. disaster. Um, and to think that that all started with one uh, pedophile, to think mm-hmm. all of it started with that. Well, and, and and a number of very courageous victims who spoke out. Oh, 100%. Um, we, we, University of Michigan uh, opening up the Brinks truck. Uh, for Jim Harbaugh. <laughs> well, Michigan is hoping Jim Harbaugh does not entertain thoughts of the NFL again and stay right where he is. Multiple reports say the university is working on a lucrative contract extension to keep him as coach of the Wolverines through the 2028 season. It's a potential five-year, $55 million deal, first reported by SI, and it would make Harbaugh the highest-paid coach in the Big Ten and second-highest-paid in college football behind Alabama's Nick Save it. So this isn't agreed upon. This is just sort of multiple reports. You know he's considered a move to the NFL before, and this year rumors are that the Bears and the Panthers are interested in him. (laughs) This is his third straight college football playoff, third straight Big Ten championship, so you see why Michigan wants to keep him. We'll see. But let me ask you this. How many times can a coach say, like, have one eyeball on the pros when he's actually should have both eyeballs on his job yeah. in front? I mean, how many times well, is the university uh, well, going to say, that, oh, please yeah. stay, please stay? This is why they're doing this, because they want to miss that in the butt. Stop and quit. it. Yes, right. It's exactly. a ball and chain. But it's a 24-carat ball and chain. It's an $11 million a year ball and chain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we could all go for that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, by the way, for those that uh, are celebrating the second night of Hanukkah, beautiful Menorah and the D um, celebration uh, last night. And uh, on night two, we hope it's pleasant, peaceful, meaningful, and uh, good times with family. When we come back, we talked a little bit about the shooter sentencing happening today. What are the legal issues? What will the judge consider? And how much can they actually consider the statements that will be made? How much does that sway a judge? It's all ahead on JR Morning coming up at 619. It will be a difficult day for our neighbors in Oxford, as maybe as many as 40 of them make their victim impact statements at the sentencing of the uh, young shooter uh, who just left so much wreckage in his wake on November 30th, 2021. We talked a little bit about how we would approach this and whether we could make a statement, whether we had the capacity to maintain our composure. Uh, But what are the legal issues that uh, the judge in this case, Judge Rowe, must consider? Uh, Todd Flood is a good friend, attorney, managing partner at Flood Law, and has given us so much guidance through this very difficult process. It's going to be a painful day, Todd. Good morning. Good morning. It is. It is. I spoke with my client, uh, Aiden Watson, last night, who's going to be speaking this morning, um, who was a victim of the shooter uh, who was shot. Um, and uh, it's going to be a tough day. There's no question about it. For the parents, for everybody, for everyone in Oxford, it's going to be a tough day. Judge um, Kwame Rowe has, I mean, a number of issues to weigh as the judge in this case, sure. but is the capacity for this young man's 
rehabilitation, is that the biggest thing that he must consider? That is. That is. Whether or not there is some morsel that he can be rehabilitated to, to you know, turn his life around within some sort of treatment um, in prison or otherwise. And I, I think, candidly, everything that the experts put on the table for Judge Rowe, um, those those possibilities have been dispelled. So, I, you know, we'll hear, and this is going to be the day that Crumbly can speak himself and actually speak to the judge and see if he can turn the judge into giving him uh, a sentence of a term of years of 25 to 40 years in, in prison. Um, Todd, do they look at, you know, a statement that the shooter might read so they know what he's going to say? Or are they just going to let him say whatever he wants? Because that would be very uh, hurtful to the people in that room. Yeah, the judge can shut him down. The okay. judge can shut him down um, if it gets to that extent. Um, so uh, the judge is not, you know, he, he doesn't have to um, present a written statement, He, you know, to anybody. He goes over that with his lawyers. His lawyers are going to talk to him about what it is he should say and shouldn't say. So um, but that's not going to be telegraphed to the judge. It's going to be live. Uh, Todd, it's Marie Osborne. Uh, they're letting they're letting me sit in this morning. But I have a question Hi, for Marie. you. Hi, I have a question for you that I think a lot of our listeners might be wondering about because we've seen these victim impact statements before, and most notably, of course, in the MSU case with uh, Larry Nasser. That was you know heart wrenching and, and went on for days. So the judge in this case has already made up his mind if if whether this is going to be life without parole or life with the possibility of parole. So all of this, uh, the, the victim statements and the uh, uh, the defendant here making this statement, does that just make any difference at all? Well, we have a constitutional right. Uh, does it make a difference? Um, not necessarily. Um, it, it, you know, the judge is probably, uh, you're right, Marie, he's already made up his mind. Um Unless someone came out and said, judge of one of the victim's families, you know, that surprised everybody, uh, maybe it sways, you know, the judge to find mercy. But I doubt it very seriously, knowing everybody here, listening to all the attorneys that I'm part of with the group. I don't see that happening. But the, the Victims' Rights Act is in our Constitution, and um, it is, uh, uh, as we saw in Nasser, you know, went on for days, right? But they have that constitutional right as a victim to speak uh, at this part of the process, to to give the judge, um, you know, the impact that it had on their lives, their families' lives. And listening to Aiden last night, who uh, I love his kid, um, he has gone through, his family has gone through um, so much, so much it it it, it the, the trajectory of his life um, has changed uh, for this time. But knowing his resilience, knowing the power of his family, Linda and Jared, and his brother and sister, I I, I have great hope that you know they heal. But Oxford is just it's a tough place right now to, it's a, it's, to be. And and we're, we keep reopening wounds with the, the process. Maybe some of it necessarily. 
Do you think, and, and is it in your experience, Todd, that this is somewhat cathartic and a healing process? And are they getting the mm-hmm. help that they yeah. need? You know, that was some, that was part of the pledge coming out of this. Mm. Yes, uh, God, it's, uh, you hit on two main topics. I, I work with um, several trauma therapists for cases, and Bethany Atwell is, is one of the best in, us, in our state. And um, Beth has oftentimes said, and I have learned, that it is cathartic. It is it does bring closure to get to the next stage, the next phase, whatever that healing process is. And this is a big part of that, um, to that cathartic, you know, healing. Uh, do they get the treatment? That's a big question. I, you know, my, my clients are paying for it out of their own pocket. So um, it's, it's not, it's not necessarily coming from the school district. It's not coming from the state. Uh, it's it's coming from their own pocket. But it's a it's a long journey in this, especially since you know we get they got a double whammy. They had a son at Michigan State that when the active shooter took place up there too. So good lord, they've been through they've been through a lot. Um, so I I don't think we provide. I know we don't provide. And it's not a think. I know we don't provide enough trauma experts and therapy experts to these families, to these people that um, they need. Um, in the state of Michigan, woefully from a long time ago, we, we kind of ended a lot of programs, especially when we shut down the Lafayette Clinic. You know, I mean, that was the start of it, right? right? But we shut down a lot of programs. And um, it, it's... It, we need we need those those experts in that field. Well, we know that during this process, Todd, we heard a lot of concern about the shooters' mental well-being. I would hope that just as much oxygen would be consumed about the victims' well-being going forward and Amen. the years that they will need. Todd, thank you for helping and the best to your clients this morning. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. Thank you. And welcome to Friday. Uh, Lloyd's got the day off, but uh, Marie Osborne was coerced, drafted, um, strong-armed into staying here and, and uh, sharing our Friday morning with us. Great to have you, you here. You promised me donuts. I'm going to keep you uh, um, your word. <laughs> I'm, I'm fasting this morning. I got to go in for a medical test, so I'm fasting. I got I, you I was allowed to have coffee. Otherwise, you know, this oh would not gosh. be, a, yeah. you know, not be pleasant. Ugly. For anybody. Uh, the markets are, for the most part, in the green. NASDAQ looking a little soft this morning, but for the most part, it looks like the markets are going to end uh, the uh, the week on a positive note. Uh, 8.30 this morning, we're going to get the new jobs report. It's expected to show that the labor market is continuing to soften in terms of our battle against inflation and what the Fed is watching for. That may be a good thing. Uh, not a recession, but it's a, a slight slowdown. It's still expected the unemployment rate is going to be somewhere around 3.9%, which is still near an historic low. There's been an, an interesting story in Axios that, you know, coming out of the pandemic and at the end of the pandemic, there was a surge in in, in uh, wage hikes. There was a surge in job growth. They have announced that era is now at an end. Um, that it's, it, 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 first of all, we've seen this with the hybrid work, right? Time folks to get Unless you're in the federal government, then apparently they just don't care. I mean, half of federal offices are empty. 
but the latest employment report from ADP showing two huge trends that define the recovery. Rapid job growth and massive pay gains for job switchers are over. So you will likely pay to be, you know, for the, the, the quits scenario uh, is Quiet no longer quitting is out. The, the, it's no longer <laughs> profitable. The grass is not greener. Yeah, no, the grass is is not greener. It's as good as it's going to get. That may be this, and you can't overgeneralize these things. Right. Uh, but they said job stayers uh, in November saw a five five point six percent increase from the prior year. Job switchers saw pay gains of eight point three percent, but that's the slowest pace of wage gains since September of twenty twenty one. So it's nearing. Uh, Nearing and but it's end. still difficult for employers to find workers. I mean, I'm still hearing that from people everywhere that they're having problems keeping staff no, everywhere. No question, and 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 it's also finding the right skills uh, that are out there for what your needs are, especially in the tech sector. And this has been an ongoing problem that Governor Whitmer and her population council is trying to to address. Meantime, there unfortunately there's going to be some workers available because Stellantis is announcing that it's cutting a shift at the Mack Avenue plant. Mm-hmm. Not because their vehicles aren't competitive, not because the market is slowing down, but because of regulations, emissions regulations in the state of California, which have impacted, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of a dozen or more other states that have followed suit. And saying, yeah, no, it's it's basically the, the California emissions makes our cars ineligible for sale in California because they run on gasoline. And, you know, if it was a foreign government doing this to us, people would be screaming bloody murder that it's anti-competitive and unfair. We are hearing this over and over and over again, though. We did a story last week on this very topic about these stringent regulations and how it's just strangling the industry, uh, killing it from the inside out. Yeah. Are you following this uh, Texas abortion story? Yes. 31-year-old mother of two, Kate Cox. um, So excited about the arrival of her third child, and at 20 weeks she learns that it's trisomy 18 and that the baby's doomed. And her reproductive system may also be doomed if she carries it to term. Yes. She could have a uterine rupture and a hysterectomy. So um, the Texas law, which is at work here, has some limited, narrow exceptions, but one of them is substantial impairment of major bodily function. Well, a ruptured uterus... And hysterectomy, I would think, would be a substantial impairment. I mean, wouldn't most reasonable minds think that? Yeah, well, the they there are no details for this one exception they have in the Texas law, and that's the problem. Well, apparently the, the, the attorney general uh, doesn't think that's an impairment of a major bodily function. Of course, that's because right. he doesn't have one. I think his impairment may be from the neck up. But um, he apparently would rather see this baby carried to term and risk this woman's fertility future future mm-hmm. and he wants to do it basically to virtue signal i'm sorry i think i don't think his i think this is about him taking a stand to satisfy a very extreme uh, element of his supporters i I'm, saw a video of the mother uh in an interview yesterday and she i mean she was in tears when she talked about this and she said i never ever thought i would be in this position we're going through the loss of a, of a child. There's no outcome here that I take home my healthy baby girl, you know? So um, it's hard, you know, just, uh, you know, grief. And the judge has given her the green light to seek this thing that she never wanted 
or would have ever sought, sought out under right. any circumstances except she dreams of having another child. I want the opportunity to get the health care I need and heal and then you know try again. That's pro-life. Of course it's pro-life. And pro-family. Yes, this woman wants to have her own child. This particular pregnancy is is life-threatening for the fetus and for the mother. And this is the problem with these no-exception bans. It doesn't take into account these instances. This woman wants to have a baby again. And, they, and I feel for her because I've went I've gone through a lot of this stuff. So I, I you know, I could start crying right now. These women want their pro-life. That's all I'm going to say. They are pro-life. Right. And and yet Ken Paxton um, has said, well, he doesn't think that perhaps she, she doesn't qualify. They didn't make their case. Well, here a judge says, first of all, sir, that you're wrong. So if you claim to be someone that is a rule of law Republican, then follow the rule of law. I think that judge has some interesting comments she, um, saying that this is someone who is pro-life. This mother is pro-life. Right. She wants to have children. It's just in this circumstance, she will probably not ever be able to have a child ever again. Two trips to the ER for bleeding and um, a flu, a fluid, indeterminate fluid that and, and horrible cramping. So, Mr. Paxton, how many how many trips to the ER would, would qualify her if she were your daughter or your wife? This attorney general threatened legal action if an abortion takes place. He addressed a letter to the hospitals involved with Cox's care and said the Cox, the doctor does not meet all the elements necessary and that it's not medically justified. And he said that it, the judge's order does not excuse the hospital or doctor from civil or criminal liability. Right. The possibility exists right. uh, so, that they could be held criminally responsible. The court says she can get this, that this is something that's legal for her to seek. But he's saying, I will punish anybody. And by the way, he doesn't rule out punishing her. He, he, he doesn't, if you notice, he doesn't say, I'm not going to seek a legal action against her. He, but he does threaten legal action against the hospital. And, and 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 this woman, she's trying to be philosophical about it. You know, it's a moment of sadness, but we really have a wonderful life here in our in our home state, and so you know, I just try to count my blessings. What a wonderful person, yeah. and I just feel horrible for her. We've all had families go through this. We've all had friends go through this. And it's so public. Her pain is so public that she's had to go public for all of this. Well, yeah, that's and pain. That's As really you know, hard. Jamie, that can yeah. be really, it's, really hard. Yes. And Ken it's Paxton, hard to share that, right? Yeah. Ken Paxton is basically the George Wallace of 2023, except he's not standing in a schoolhouse door. He's standing in the door to the, to, to the hospital uh, for this woman that is seeking care. Also, as a man, he really has no idea. What she's going through. You would, you, now, you would I know a lot of men who would argue with you on that point, but um, because they feel that they're supportive and they're, you know, but but it's not their body. I have, right. an, I have an idea that if it was my wife's reproductive organs and her life at stake, I, I would tell Mr. Paxton butt out. Uh, I don't care whether what, what your equipment is. She could. It's about the, defending my wife's. Right. This mother could go to another state. If it got to that, she could. Right. But she shouldn't. Have, have to. to. The right. law allows for it in Texas. But apparently he's driven by a more political motivation. 645 at GR Morning. Between 2016 and 2019, I'll bet you paid your taxes. 
I know that I did. I, I'm sure that, that, like most Americans, you sit there and you say, we, I, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to get in trouble with the IRS. I'm going to be very careful. Uh, well, Hunter Biden, President Joe Biden's son, is now facing a multi-count indictment from the Department of Justice, alleging that he, quote, engaged in a four-year scheme to not pay at least $1.4 million in self-assessed federal taxes that he owed for those years. He didn't pay. Instead, he spent them on drugs, escorts, and girlfriends. And uh, the question now is, will this end in a conviction? Will this end in a sweetheart plea deal like we saw what was offered before? Will we um, perhaps see him serve up to 17 years in prison? Uh, Watching all of this with more than uh, an interested eye is Matthew Schneider, the leader of investigations, white-collar defense practice at Honigman Law, who used to file these kinds of indictments at the as the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Matthew, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Good morning. And you're exactly right, Guy. Everybody knows in America we've got to pay our taxes. We don't like to do that. We know that we don't want to do that. But we've done it in the past, and we know we have to do it in the future. And the claim here, the allegation is, is that it's the same thing. Hunter well, Biden knew he had to do it, and he just didn't do it. And he, so tell me, how cut and dried are cases like this? I mean, there's a question, how much did you owe, and how much did you pay? Um, and and we should point out, this isn't something that this was an accounting error. They're saying this was a four-year scheme. Yes, this is not a mistake. The allegations are three things, tax evasion, avoiding the punishments, avoiding the penalties, failure to pay is the second, and then filing a false return. When you file the return, you're lying about it. These are really serious allegations. And in fact, this is the most serious case that Hunter Biden has faced to date. These allegations are very solid, it appears. A lot of this evidence is based on Hunter Biden's own words, his own emails and his discussions. And that is evidence that is extremely strong because when you go in front of a jury and you kind of do a paperwork case, explain, here's the taxes, here's what he should have paid, people will follow that along to a certain extent. But when you put in front of the jury, here's what the defendant himself said, and here's the defendant not paying these taxes and avoiding all of this, it adds a special tone to the jury pool where people get mad and they get especially mad when they see the types of things that are being spent on. I mean, this is really, it's called an extravagant lifestyle, drugs, escorts, luxury travel, exotic cars. The jury is going to hate this person if Hunter Biden goes to trial. Matthew, did Hunter Biden pay this back in full? He did, right? So how does that affect the case? It appears so, but that's not an excuse. And the fact is, is that it was strung over over several years. And I think the egregious part of this isn't necessarily the consequences that resulted from that. It's what he spent it on. What the government is saying is he earned his income on all of these lavish gifts, his business dealings. He earned income on Burisma's board. He knew he had to pay the taxes. And what makes, as I was indicating, what makes juries upset is what you did with the money. And even if you you did ultimately pay it back, you first chose that you were going to spend it on fancy clothing and a Lamborghini and things like that. And you delayed putting off your payment of taxes. And it's just not very palatable for Hunter Biden.
Uh, Matthew, it's Marie Osborne. Uh, um, Hunter Biden faces 17 years in prison. Is that how does that uh, compare to other similar crimes and possible sentencing? Do people really go to prison for 17 years for crimes like this or a day? No, no, there's no way that he would serve 17 years. That's just the maximum under the law. The first charge is a five-year felony. The second is a misdemeanor. The third is a three-year felony. Mm-hmm. I believe if if he's convicted, he will go to prison. The normal person convicted of these crimes under these circumstances will see at least a, a few years in prison, and that's likely what he'd be looking at, maybe two or three years. Matthew, the evidence in this case has been out there at least three years, maybe longer. Do you think that we would have had this indictment from the DOJ? And obviously you spent a number of years there. Do you think we would have seen this indictment but for the two IRS whistleblowers that came forward? And also the judge who oversaw the uh, plea bargain agreement who asked some very inconvenient questions. Yes, that's been reported a lot so far in the media. People are giving credit to the judge for throwing out the earlier plea deal. I don't think that's entirely accurate because if you actually read the transcript of what happened in court, Hunter Biden's own lawyers also pulled out of that plea deal. They didn't agree with it. So it wasn't just the judge. So I think we're seeing things like that. And also what we are looking at in this indictment, there's a lot of unnamed people in here. Business associate number one, number two, number three, entertainment lawyer, trial attorney. None of these people are listed. And I think what the when the other shoe drops, we'll find out who these people are, what they're saying about Hunter Biden, and what everyone wants to know, what connection did these people have with Joe Biden? That is not yet seen in this indictment. No, and there's also the, the political prospect, uh, Matthew, of, of this being in the headlines throughout the, the presidential uh, campaign. Thank you for your time, my friend. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. You too. Lloyd's got the day off. Uh, Jamie's here as well as Marie Osborne. Uh, Jamie and Lloyd and I uh, will be uh, with Chuck Stokes on uh, Channel 7 Spotlight on the news program. It's uh, Sunday at 10. And uh, you know, one of the things we're going to be talking about is just the kind of a status as we near the end of the year and the, on the status of things in Michigan and the city of Detroit. We Once again, a beautiful event last night, Menorah in the mm-hmm. D. Campus Marshes is just the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, so beautiful. I'm really happy it was peaceful after a lot of protests and things around the country. I'm glad it was peaceful. Now, well, they had to go through metal detectors to get yeah. in there, but that is a small price to pay for having a great event. And it was. And uh, there was one small brief protest. I think it was just some individuals carrying letters that spelled out ceasefire, um, but not the, the horrible mm-hmm. chants that we've heard. Yet, God knows, on campuses uh, and, and in, in protests throughout the United States, we have seen this. We've also seen a rise in anti-Semitism. There was a congressional committee hearing about this earlier this week. And the fallout from that has been <laughs> just just huge. Um, we heard from the Harvard, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, the UPenn presidents, also the president of MIT, asked repeatedly by, by really simple questions, simple questions from both sides of the aisle about what are you doing to curb this on your campus? Multiple times a week on my way to class, I walk by mobs of people chanting from the river to the sea, which is a call for the destruction of the state of Israel. You're a dirty little Jew. You deserve to die. A word said not by Hamas, but by my classmates and professors. That's a Harvard student and a uh. UPenn student who testified um, at that committee. 
Um, and the UPenn president was asked specifically, uh, what are you doing about it? I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews. Does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. What context right would on. permit that? Yeah. It's Please so explain easy. I don't to me. understand this. These are smart women who've gotten to their position because they, you know, are very accomplished. Right. How do you not see that simple question and say, Yes, they that came, is a problem for our campus. They parsed out their words to the point that they came across as sanctimonious and subhuman. Uh, you rough. you didn't give a human response. You gave a parsed legalistic response yes. that your attorneys have, you know, probably you, approved. The, what what stood out from that? They were more concerned about offending those that are offensive than than striking out against them. They were so concerned about insulting them or offending them that they 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 engaged in the indefensible. I was struck this week by a response by Governor Kathy Hochul uh, to the uh, there was a, a synagogue that there was an incident of violence at a synagogue. And this is what she said. And I was so struck by this. And I thought, why could these presidents have said something like Here's the direct quote. The bottom line is this. The safety of Jewish New Yorkers is non-negotiable. Every act, whether it's verbal or physical, any act of anti-Semitism is unacceptable and undermining the public safety at our synagogue on the first night of Hanukkah is even more deplorable. It went on from there. But that one sentence says it all. Who could be offended by that? Who could take? And it says it. And you know what? We could insert Islamophobic statements in there as well. Yes, speech can be offensive. Our Constitution does allow for that. But when that speech is a form of harassment and calls for the genocide of a specific group of people, and that's the double standard that's work here. As somebody said, uh, you know, they will call somebody out for not using proper pronouns, but you're not going to call them out for a call for genocide. Liz McGill, the, the president of UPenn, has now seen one donor that has given $100 million uh, threatened to rescind that donation. And she issued a video yesterday basically looking at the backlash. Uh, not exactly. Well, it you, does you sound me, better. It yeah, sounds better. It does sound better. Yeah, but she basically Jamie. says, yeah, I, I gave a legalistic constitutional answer and I needed to do better than that. I was not focused on, but I should have been the irrefutable fact that a call for genocide of Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. And it's evil, plain and simple. Well, and and thank you. Great. That's what you could have said. You lead one of the finest institutions in America and you didn't have that, that didn't run through your mind. And by the way, they weren't asked once, they were asked several times. And in some cases, they they just looked back at their yeah. congressional inquisitors and just kind of like, well, again, so offend, so afraid of offending. She did say that this is something, and we've seen this at U of M. U of M is going to, we understand, announce a a council on anti-Semitism to make sure that this is addressed. And she is promising to do the same at UPenn. For decades, under multiple Penn presidents and consistent with most universities, Penn's policies have been guided by the Constitution and the law. 
In today's world, where we are seeing signs of hate proliferating across our campus and our world in a way not seen in years, these policies need to be clarified and evaluated. We just can't rely For decades under on the, multiple on the Constitution consistent- anymore. We, we, we can't do it. We, we, you know, we, yes, we have to respect the Constitution, but we also have to look at the greater good here, too. And, and I think the response that. is pretty good. And she said she's going to look at the policies there and change some things up. It feels not genuine now, though, because of what we what saw, we saw previously. in Congress. Yeah, one uh, of those lawmakers that got absolute crickets to his questions was John James. And he's going to be on with us coming up at 735. And we hope you can hang around and join us for that. And if you can't. Um, we, we'll, we'll have it at thegreatvoice.com. Sorry, one, one, no, one last point on this. Uh, watching 60 Minutes over the weekend and uh, at Dartmouth University, they, they had this topic. They, they explored this topic. And they at Dartmouth University, for years, they have been having discussions about this very topic, about racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, these... Vi- Really difficult, difficult mm-hmm, topics, right? right? But they open the doors and they have group discussions and they're moderated by the university. They're encouraged by the university. And that university has not seen this kind of reaction as we've seen on other college campuses. And right after October 7th, they had a big town hall meeting and they showed clips of it. It wasn't comfortable to watch. There was a lot of back and forth. But there weren't those protests where people are shouting at each other and right. making no sense and threatening. It was a dialogue. It was a di- what, interesting what should be discussion. Happening, what should be happening on our college campuses? They're showing the way. Dartmouth really showing the way on that. If it's about learning, that means open up your mind to other viewpoints. Exactly. And, and in a safe space. Exactly. By the way, our thoughts uh, with my alma mater, Central Michigan University, today, uh, f- finding out that one of those killed in the UNLV shootings. Uh, is one of their alumni, um, Jerry Chang, uh, received his master's degree in computer science from CMU. He was a few years after me in 1986, and um, but one of those that was gunned down on the UNLV campus and at Michigan State. They have painted the rock uh, with the words UNLV strong. And how many more? How many more mark. is right? Yeah. It is uh, time on this Friday for WJR's Business Beat. Let's call in Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of Startup Nation, and he wants to spotlight the entrepreneurial tech and vibrant startup community here in our area on WJR. Good morning, Guy. We're always wanting to be out ahead of keeping entrepreneurs informed here on the Business Beat, and as you know, we love grant programs. Why? Well, because grant funding is funding for which you don't need to provide equity in exchange for, and you don't need to pay it back. Once you've been awarded it, it's yours. And so today on the Business Beat, here's another great grant program, this one from Verizon Digital Ready. Whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur or one wanting to grow your existing business. As we all know, running a small business has never been more complex and challenging. And so this grant program is of particular interest in that it gives you the tools you need to get started and get rolling. It's a free program. Entrepreneurs and small businesses are awarded with more tools to succeed in today's digital world. The free personalized learning plan includes courses on financing, e-commerce, logistics, social media marketing, conversion funnels, and more, as well as one-on-one coaching, community forums, and incentives like the latest round of $10,000 grants to be awarded to individual companies. To be eligible for a grant, you simply have to complete two courses or live coaching events before December 20th, 2023. Don't delay. Check it out. You can learn more and apply at StartupNation.com. 
This is all part of Verizon's commitment to deploy more than a million dollars in funding grants to small businesses with a particular focus on those founded by women or people of color. Need a shot of education and even funding for your small business? Again, go to StartupNation.com to learn more and apply for the Verizon Small Business Digital Ready Grant Program today. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, and that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. It is a morning of gratitude here on JR Morning. Uh, thanks to you, our folks at Say Detroit, and Mitch Album, Ken Brown, who uh, did a 15-hour Radiothon marathon yesterday, uh, raised over $2 million uh, to help the neediest among us, and thank you for your support. We just are showering you with affection and gratitude this morning. Uh, for your generosity and uh, I mean, and congratulations to Mitch and our thanks to him for doing what he does in the community. And we're just incredibly proud of all the, the folks uh, associated with that program and the work that they do with say Detroit. Um, as we uh, like to do, because we were doing the radiothon yesterday, we didn't have an opportunity to do uh, therapy Thursday with Dr. Steve Craig, but Fortunately, he's also in the house on Fridays as feel well. Feel good Friday? Yeah, so it's feel good. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Because <laughs> this is a day we may need a little help to feel good. Uh, so we welcome in our friend, psychologist and corporate coach for Craig Counseling Services in Bloomfield Hills, Dr. Steve Craig for Feel Good Friday. Good <laughs> feel morning. Good, feel Good Friday. Good morning, everyone. That, yeah, <laughs> And that's what we're going to do today on this very cheery holiday scenario we have today. All right, Dr. Steve, I need some advice about how to talk to my wife about Christmas at our house. We've been married for five years, and it's getting worse every year. The problem is Christmas has always been my mother's big holiday, but she told me last week that this year she and my father are considering not even coming because of how awful my wife makes my mother feel at Christmas every year. My mother has been organizing and running Christmas for 30 years, and my wife doesn't appreciate all my mother does or respect our traditions. She's clearly angry at my mother every year, and it's always very tense. When the night is over and everyone leaves, I always get an earful from my wife about how controlling and disrespectful my mother is. I explain to my wife that my mother prepares for Christmas weeks in advance and makes all sorts of food and decorates the tree differently every year, and that's how she shows us her love for us. I told my wife that she needed to dial her anger back this year because my mother doesn't want to come. And my wife refused. She told me I needed to rein my mother in and that if my parents didn't come, that would be fine with her. So now I'm stuck in the middle and my wife is not giving ground. How do I get her to see that Christmas is supposed to be a time when family gets together and enjoys each other's company and that she's ruining her relationship with my mother? (laughs) Who's up? Holy smokes. I'm well, going to go first. I'll go first. I was going to say, you guys have more experience dealing with mother-in-laws. Oh, we'll just sit back. It's, it's, right. a, it's a different thing for. Okay. What I read in this is that Christmas is very important to the mother-in-law and to the wife. And what I learned from you, Dr. Steve, in a couple other scenarios is that everyone needs to have a win. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps you split it up a little bit. Let the mother-in-law do something one night, either Christmas Eve or Christmas, at her own house with her tree and her all her food, etc. And then the wife gets a win where she gets to do everything. That's my answer. <laughs> and I'm looking at him. Is it right? I don't know. The whole time she's looking at me. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, that's a great idea, except you cut the mother's family out of it, right? Because no, I'm saying you family... spend time at the mother-in-law's house altogether and then maybe the next day. Well, right, wife. but what about her family? Oh, well, they come. To, I don't okay, know. Okay, yeah. Move on. No, I like. No, I love. No, I love the idea. I just, there's only there's a limited number of 
of, uh, of yeah, holidays. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what? This is such a sensitive topic for me because I'm that crazy woman that, you know, Christmas has to, you know, decorating the tree and all the stuff and all the food and all the tradition and all the little stuff. I, I was sent stuff. by your family. I yeah, think, I, right? I was going to yeah. say, sign Marie Osborne's husband. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I appreciate the husband here saying, trying to explain to his wife, look, this is meaningful for my mother. Here's what she's had to say about all this. I had a wonderful mother-in-law, by the way, just a fabulous mother-in-law, so I can't comment on that part of this. Um, and him trying to just point, you, you, you know what, retrospect here, years later, I realized, you know, my mother-in-law's gone now, my own mother's gone. You know what, I get, now get to do everything my way or how I like it or whatever. So, I don't know. I, I don't feel like I can comment on this. And I just, it's just <laughs> like, you know what, this woman can also take a chill pill and just, just take a chill pill. Okay. You know, the, 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 the mother-in-law is not going to be around forever. The line in here that caught my attention is my mother has been organizing and running Christmas. <laughs> yes, and what's wrong with that, God um, Hello? Cr- Christmas is about sharing, and it's about family, and traditions are great. Elaborate tree decorations are great. Yes, they are. But you also have to moderate to allow others into your Christmas as well. And it sounds... And, and 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 but I also think this guy needs to support his wife and her desire to have. It just sounds like a battle over control, which is what a horrible thing to bring into the ding, holiday ding, season. Ding, ding, Happy ding. holidays. Ding 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 <laughs> yeah. ding ding. Yeah. Control. Yeah. All right. So here's my here's my problem with this. Let's let's talk about respect. Well, let, let's do this. Well, a mistake many families make is that when one of their kids marries someone, they have this assumption that the, the, the new person coming in will just be absorbed underneath the umbrella of their family. Yeah. And ev- all their traditions and their beliefs and everything will just supersede whatever that person has who are bringing in. And they don't even realize that it's, that it's disrespectful and offensive in itself. That if, you know, if I marry you, all of a sudden you're just going to do everything my family does and everything you did doesn't matter anymore. So here he's talking about being disrespectful to his mother's opinion, but... In, in essence, he's saying to his wife, why, you know, why are you angry that she is, you know, superseding any of your ideas, any of your beliefs? Imagine your wife having her house, so we, we could do you, you know, and your mother-in-law comes over. She runs Christmas at mm-hmm. your house in your kitchen and how it's going to go and everything you're going to do. And you're just sitting in the other room. It's your room. duty to subjugate realize, your needs. And, yeah, uh, I didn't realize that was part of that. That right. would be crazy. Yeah, right. It's no, your home. Right. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but there's an assumption of just that, you know, you everything supersedes you came into the family. And that to me is the problem here is this, the the husband doesn't recognize that when, when you get married, we start new traditions and new things. And it doesn't mean the old ones have to die, but you have to work out something together and do new things. You can't just treat your wife like she has to be subjugated to the new rules. And I mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't do this, but when I read it and the husband said, you know, my mother, they're not going to come. I'd say, well, you go over there with them. We'll have a good Christmas over here because <laughs> she is mad at him for not defending her right to have her own family traditions and let's work it out together. Well, and he says this is about how she shows her love and affection. Well, that's fine, but she's also setting standards for perfection that it has to right. be just right. like this because that's how we've had it every year. That's that's the that way puts she, huge pressure on you and everybody right. around you. The way she's showing her love and affection for you is to completely disregard any of your feelings. You know, how is that respectful? But what about both it. people getting a win? 
Was I wrong? Uh, yeah. No, no, no. You're. How do you get there, though? Yeah. How you get there is, I think, this guy. Oh, here's another error people make: is that this guy normally would say to his wife, "Well, you go talk to my mother about this." Mm-hmm. There's no win coming yeah, there. No. The way you get a win is. The guy has to intervene at the first, I'll call it the first domino of the thought sequence, which is that, hey, mom, she she is not expected to completely be subjugated to our beliefs. You got to start there. Yes, we've done the same thing for 30 years, but we need to do something new now. So I need you two to get together and talk about ways to make it be different. We can keep old things and new things, but you guys have to talk about what wins she can have and what wins you can have. But we're not going to start from... Get your wife to just get on in line. Huh. That won't go well. But he's got to intervene at that level. That's it, a tough role for a lot of men sons. to do. Right, because he has yeah. to put his mother in line oh, and she that's is a tough likely going to say, who, you know, did she put you up to this? Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, and then you get that thing of, oh, you know, when sons get married, you lose them to the wife. Right. And I've yes. lost you to my, you yeah. know, yeah, you, so you, you're you killing me. Christmas. Ah, but, yeah. but, but that's his job now. Is I mean, he doesn't have to throw his mother under the bus, but you have a wife now. Is is uh, Christmas and the holidays in general, when, when we expand that out to holidays in general, they're so fraught with so many stories like this. Yes. I mean, I all my girlfriends yeah. call and we're all talking about the same thing. Why is that? Is it because we take our childhood memories and want to put them, we want to hold on to them forever because they were so warm and dear I, to us? I think that's a great question because I think it has to do with my central point here, which is <laughs> we don't we don't like change. And we think, you know, a, a new person comes in the family, but don't make me change my stuff. And so then we get defend, offended about, mm-hmm. well, offended. we always have Christmas dinner. We can't have it during right. the middle of the day. And, and why are we so holding so tight to these things rather than embracing new things all along? And it's that the the, the fight to hold on to the old things yeah. that gets in the way of everything. <laughs> it's it's peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Unless, of course, it happens to be an in-law that, that, that <laughs> wants to change <laughs> things. Well, right? So yeah. let's start with the peace on earth part and extend it to peace within the right. family. But, but yes, and um, maybe it's the same point, but okay, just that uh, yeah. you, you you, you can't assume everyone's going to start just doing everything you want. Right. That's not a respectful. Thanks, Dr. Steve. Thank you, Dr. Steve. On Capitol Hill, they're asking a, a lot of probing questions about anti-Semitism on college campuses, about what's happening to uh, automotive buyers and their ability to have consumer choice. Uh, also uh, disclosing of foreign investment universities and whether or not there's going to be some transparency when it comes to that. Uh, on the leading edge of a lot of these issues is John James, the U.S. Congressman for Michigan's 10th District uh, and Shelby Township, who joins us live this morning. He's also chasing some pretty cool fighter jets these days on Capitol Hill as well. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Friday, everybody. And happy Friday to you. i got to dial it back to the beginning part of the week when you and a a number of others of your colleagues, uh, both Republicans and Democrats, had some really tough questions for the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn. And... (laughs) I watched a, a clip of, of you asking very reasonable questions and just complete silence from these professors. Kind of walk me through that and what that moment was like. Yeah, sure. It was mind-blowing. And, and I, I'll just tell you, they, they weren't hard questions. They weren't tough questions. They were easy questions like, is genocide bad? Uh, is from the river to the sea bad? Is, is, uh, um, what are you doing on campus to, to try to protect your Jewish students? 
and if you aren't doing anything, are you willing to work on something and come back to us in a reasonable period of time? They had no answer. So um, it, it's absolutely shameful and that the uh, the people who are supposed to know better, the, uh, the, the president of uh, what we thought were the most elite institutions in the world, uh, unable to answer the most basic questions uh, of, of respecting humanity, dignity, human rights, and, and disavowing calls for genocide. Uh, Congressman James, you want to get the F-15 EX fighter jet to Selfridge. Is it helpful to have others joining you and Senator Stabenow and Gary Peters? Well, uh, despite our slim house majority and my status just kind of as a freshman member, I was able to secure uh, 1.2, uh, I'm sorry, uh, $123 million for procurement of additional F-15 EXs. And every, just about every member of the Michigan House delegation, bipartisan, Democrat and Republicans, join onto my letter. But you're right. It, it is a team effort. And the fact that uh, neither of our senators thought uh, uh, that it would be a good idea to join is, is really disheartening and, uh, and, and really bad for, uh, for, for this effort. But we don't give up. Uh, we're going to find an, an additional way. And I'm working overtime to make that happen. Did they not sign the letter? But the, I mean, they're on board with it, right? Well, you would think so, but when the uh, the essential, I'm sorry, the uh, the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization, that's basically what the uh, Defense Department can do. Passed. We reached out to Senator Stabenow and Peters' office to ask them to move an amendment in the Senate. That didn't happen. When we reached out uh, again, when the appropriations passed, essentially Congress is saying um, this is the money to pay for what we've given you permission to buy. Uh, we reached out, no response. We reached out three times after that, no response reached out to Stabenow's office again. Uh, she said she would check with Senate Armed Services, um, and she never got back with us. Uh, we reached out directly to Peters, uh, and uh, his, his guy was just starting out and uh, just getting acquainted, never heard back. Sent multiple emails to delegation regarding the fleet leveling, and fleet leveling is basically taking air fighter aircraft from all over and spreading them evenly so every base has a mission. Uh, and they only jumped onto that letter once uh, a number of other senators jumped on. I, I guess they're not the leaders they suggested that they were. But after it, it took so long to get an answer from them on the conference letter, and, and conference uh, is basically where you take a, a team from the Senate, a team from the House, and they get together and they get something that will pass both the Senate and the House for Senate and the President. Um, nothing happened. Nothing changed. Only after all this happened, after weeks and months went by, uh, they they uh, sent their own letter, okay. and they they were they weren't asking for the appropriations that we were. So uh, it is really disheartening that uh, people seem to be playing politics with something so important uh, as Selfridge. I, I I really look forward to continuing to work with our senators, with our governor, to make sure we have an additional fighter mission. Uh, and right now, uh, I'm going. I worked. Uh, I, I talked with the uh, with the tag yesterday, and uh, and he's he's been great. Um, and uh, doing a, a good job, and uh, we want to make sure that uh, we're we're working on any fighter that we can get because we cannot let uh, a fighter mission leave Selfridge National Guard Base. Uh, Senator James, it's Marie Osborne. We can't let you go without asking about uh, your support of the CARS uh, bill, uh, choice in automobile retail sales, of course, having to do, it, it would block the Environmental Protection Agency uh, from finalizing and enforcing vehicle emissions. We were talking about this earlier and how this has put such a stranglehold on the industry. I mean, we're not talking about not developing electric vehicles. They're here to stay. We need to embrace that technology. But at the same time, we can't kill the uh, technology that people like, consumers want and like. 
That's right. This is all about your choices. I'm protecting your choices. Goodness, if you want an EV, get an EV. I have a hybrid. Uh, but the CARS Act, the, the choice, choice, choice in Automotive Retail Sales Act, uh, it, it essentially bars the EPA, the, the big government, from, uh, from finalizing uh, rules that would have uh, un, uh, cost prohibitive for, uh, for automakers, for retailers, and most importantly for you. Last week, we just saw 3,000 auto dealers sign a letter opposing Biden's electric vehicle mandate. 211 of them are in Michigan, and some are in my district. Mm-hmm. This one-size-fits-all, top-down, uh, uh, big government approach is not good for people. And it's not just about the companies that are going to suffer this rush transition in electrification, but it's these leftist policies that have pushed our jobs to Mexico and China. They are building their middle class on the backs of ours, and it's wrong. It, it, the auto work, auto companies, in order to stay in existence, in order to comply with these mandates, are being forced to lay, lay off workers rather than train them. Let me, and, let me and, point and, that and, out. Yeah. Stellantis yeah. yesterday, John, announced that it's cutting a shift at the Mack Avenue plant here. That's right. It's also cutting a shift at, in Toledo, not because the Greek Jeep Grand Cherokee isn't a great vehicle and highly popular, but because they've been told you can't sell it in California. If a foreign nation did that to us, we would be filing uh, anti-competitive uh, complaints with the uh, with trade officials. It's absolutely insane. And you're, you're putting people out of jobs uh, when prices are going higher. Uh, and it's not these companies' fault. Like they're they're forced to comply or die. And the there are other regulations. And I'm actually you're going to be hearing about this in the new year. I'm going to be going after other regulations that will put billions of dollars in penalties um, onto uh, companies, which would force more of these layoffs, which would force these bankruptcies. And we've seen this before. We saw this with the Great Recession. the The, the government has gotten too big, and it is hurting people. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue sticking up for my industry. I'm going to continue to stick up for my state, and I'm going to continue to stick up for my people. Uh, Congressman, real quick, what do you think of the uh, charges against President Biden's son? It has, he, the president has not been implicated in these charges. Look, if you, if, if you do the crime, you, you do the time. But you know what? In this country, it's so great that we have due process, and you're innocent until proven guilty. Uh, we will see what comes out of these allegations, and, uh, and I, have, uh, I have confidence that uh, the justice will be served. All right. Let the chips fall. Uh, Representative James, if we don't connect with you between now and Christmas, have a wonderful holiday with your family. Thank you so much. God bless you all. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And, and blessings on your family as well. John James from the 10th District, when we come back, um, there have been families in this state that have inflicted a terrible abuse and neglect upon their children. And they've been able to get away with it over a longer period of time because those children were homeschooled. Nobody was able to see the warning signs. Some are saying it's time to have tighter regulation on homeschool families. But how do you do that and also not threaten their freedoms to educate their children the way they would like to? That's Topic number one next at 749 here on News Talk 760. Homeschooling is a, uh, a tradition in the state of Michigan. It's something that many um, families practice, uh, gives them control. Uh, they have concerns about what's being taught in K-12 through public schools or even in some cases religious schools and want to handle that at home. The question becomes is if those are neglectful and abusive parents, does it also give them Kind of a get-out-of-jail-or-get-out-of-trouble-free card because they can do this uh, within the walls of their home and there are no outsiders 
who might be able to see the warning signs. Uh, This is not an abstract thought. We have seen some horrific cases, but they also represent just a small minority of those that homeschool. And that's really the issue here. We subject others to onerous regulations to battle this. Matt Colazar is a very thoughtful uh, state representative from Michigan's 22nd District. Uh, Democrat from Plymouth joins us this morning on JR Morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning, guys. Thank you for having me on today. Just kind of uh, lay that foundation for me. We've seen a couple of terrible cases which really acted as inspiration to you on this. Uh, We have, and I think it's very important for me to point out that I fully support and respect the rights of parents to homeschool their children. And a vast majority of homeschool parents do an amazing job. The problem is, is that Michigan is one of only 11 states with no regulation in terms of registering a child. We essentially, if they homeschool their child, there's no requirement, so we don't necessarily know where they are. And as a result, what we saw, especially in the pandemic, was we just, we lost a lot of students and don't know what happened to them. Um, Representative, this could protect children because if children are going to school, oftentimes teachers or people in authority can can notice if there's some abuse going on. And I am always for protecting children. Uh, likewise. I mean, keep in mind, I was a teacher before I was a state representative. And when a student walks into a school, there are mandated reporters everywhere. And so they can see sort of abuse. And in the case that we're talking about in Michigan, maybe someone could have stepped in earlier. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It's, you know, when you, I know, for example, when I was a teacher, I I still remember I had a student who uh, walked into the classroom one day, her arm was in a sling, and she had had indicated to me that that she had been abused. And so Mm -hmm. I immediately went down to the principal's office and said, okay, this is what's going on. We need to report this. And he was, he told me right away, he said, we are already aware of it. We are already in contact with authorities. It was that fast. She hadn't been in school 15 minutes, and the authorities were already being contacted. Uh, I wonder if this is a little bit of uh, uh, putting the genie back in the bottle, uh, State Representative. I I wonder, because we've lost track of all these students, uh, because during the pandemic, we, you know, if they were homeschooled, we don't, we didn't really keep track of them. And now we're going to have to if this all passes, we're going to have to try to make an effort to find out who they are, where they are, and what's happening to them. Are, is that going to ever be accomplished? You know, I do believe it can. And I think it goes back to what I said earlier, that a vast majority of homeschoolers do a great job. And I have the belief that simply filling out a form to say, I am homeschooling my child, is not overly cumbersome or burdensome. I reject that idea because this is a... At the core, this is about keeping children safe from abusers. And I would like to believe that that is something every person can agree with. Mm-hmm. So what, what, how could we legislate this? Do we require um, twice yearly doctor's visits mm-hmm. for those children that are homeschooled? Uh, and, and who is an acceptable provider? Who, who, how do you have oversight without it being intrusive? So there are varying degrees of regulation on homeschooling throughout the country, depending on where you go. Michigan is one of those states that has no regulation. I think at the very minimum, 
simply just registering a child as a homeschooled student so we know that they are indeed being homeschooled so we know where they are is at the bare minimum something we can do that I would say is not intrusive at all. I think that that is, is something that most people would agree on. Now, I know there's other states that do require an annual or maybe a twice a year um, checking in with a mandate reporter. That could be a lot of different people. Um, I know there was legislation that proposed that back, I believe, in 2015 that ended up not, um, not getting across the finish line. I think there's varying degrees of things you can do, but at the bare minimum, at least let us know who the children being homeschooled in the state are. Uh, Representative Jamie Green of Richmond, she's on the House uh, Education Committee and is a homeschool parent, blasted this, saying requiring homeschool students to register with the state is egregious violation of parental rights, invasion of privacy, and an unwanted government overreach. Registering apparently is an overreach, in her opinion. Um, the Supreme Court has has denied sort of any kind of oversight when it comes to the teacher. So this is a very interesting topic. Um, absolutely. And by the way, I have the utmost respect for Representative Green. I'm the chair of the Education Committee in the House. She is the vice chair. Uh, I do disagree with her on this point because, again, I don't think this is overly intrusive. To simply say, I'm homeschooling my child and have her registered, you can continue out. You can continue on with your child's education. You just have to tell us you're homeschooling them. I don't see where the intrusion well, is there. Let, let me let me try to suss that out a bit because I think it comes down to an issue of trust, a matter of trust. You, you, it's the idea that that making me register is the preamble. It opens the door to to this kind of onerous regulation or more intrusive behavior. That it's the first step, and there's a lack of trust that it will be respected. And I appreciate that standpoint, but at the same time, it comes to the fact that we know, because we have seen, as you said at the beginning of the segment, we yeah. have seen horrific stories of children being abused or in, in the most, in, in just the worst cases, even being murdered. And an abuser could hide behind Michigan's lack of homeschool regulation to get away with it for a long time. There was a case out of Detroit where two children were found in a freezer. And the, and the only way that that was discovered because the mom had said she was homeschooling those children, the only way it was discovered is she didn't pay her rent. And um, the movers who were moving her belongings out of her residence came upon the freezer. Let me that ask should you, not be okay in anyone's book. If, yeah. if she was registered, how would those children have been protected? Would someone continue to check on them? And that's a great question. I think at the very least, because it was discovered after the fact, I was like, oh, yeah, I was homeschooling. If there was a registry that said, we know that this person at this house is being, reg is, is being homeschooled, at least at some point it's on somebody's radar. Got it. And I also wonder, Representative, the, I, I have to say, isolation for child abusers is what they're after. They want uh, the victims to be isolated. They don't want them interacting with anybody. All abusers, uh, domestic uh, abusers uh, want that as well. Isolation is key to their uh, quest for abuse. Yes, I 100% agree. And the other thing to keep in mind, it goes back to what I said earlier, is, and this is the main reason that I think registration is a good idea, is when we had the pandemic, a lot of kids fell through the cracks. 
there were a lot of parents dissatisfied with the education that their child was receiving at that time. And I fully can appreciate their viewpoint on that mm -hmm. one. And so they elected to homeschool, but they didn't tell anybody, you know, you don't have to register it. So we've got a situation where I've spoken with numerous school administrators around the state where they said, there are kids we simply don't know what happened to and we cannot find. Well, and again, I, I, just don't see why it's government overreach yeah. to know where these kids are. Well, and it's not just abuse. There's also an element of neglect here. People who say they're homeschooling their children and then don't do a doggone thing. And you know, we've seen relatives um, file complaints saying, look, my niece and nephew can't read right. and they're 10 and 12 yeah. years old. Um, and, but they're being homeschooled and they're just not doing a very good job. It's a fascinating topic, Representative Colazar, and I, I know it's still First and foremost, about protecting children. Thank you for your time. It is going to be a busy news-filled Friday, and it really begins out in uh, Oakland County, where the Oxford shooter who took four lives and irrevocably changed perhaps hundreds, if not thousands of others to some degree or another, uh, will be sentenced, uh, facing up to life in prison without parole, uh, but as a young person may receive less than that, all of it hinging. We had a great conversation with Todd Flood about this, and you can find it at thegreatvoice.com. All of it hinging on his capacity to be rehabilitated, which when you read his journals, you just wonder whether that isn't just the, the most obscure concept. The journals are very disturbing, and they're, they're out there if you want to read them. Um, I think the argument is his mind wasn't fully formed when this happened and is it right to put him away for life but that's up to the judge the one thing that it doesn't seem to be in question here is about his mental competence when you look at the methodical way that he planned it and the methodical way that he executed that is not um the uh that is not the, the signature of a, of a deranged mind or of a disassociated or disorganized mind um he clearly knew what he was doing um, so, I, you know, yes, I know that normally the question, that question about a fully formed mind comes about with impulse control, right? Right. Okay. I got in a fight and at the last minute I pulled a gun and I shot a guy. That's impulse control. That's the, I can see that argument applying there. This to me is different when you look at the planning, the execution, the ability to reflect and say, oh gosh, I thought I was caught when they found my drawing and then right. not. It certainly uh, feels different. It was planned. It was premeditated, all of that. And yeah. hopefully there's some closure for the people who are going to speak today in that courtroom. And that was the other thing that Todd said. We asked him, you know, is and he's representing a number of the people that will speak today. And so he's talked with these folks as they go through the very difficult process of sharing their pain and said, yeah, it is helpful to them. And he's seen it help people. And there are also great and through his uh, firm, he is getting therapy counselors in to help these people. And that it can. And we talked to Dr. Steve Craig about that off, uh, off mic and said that, yeah, there, there are some great therapists out there that can help these people. And I just pray that that's so. Right. But you're probably never quite the same after you go through something like that. And I mm. think that's what the Michigan State students feel like as they repainted the rock about UNLV. How right. many more of these do we have to go through for something to change? Anything. Yeah. In the meantime, it's about individuals coping with their respective pain and yeah. and finding that new normal that hopefully will be a changed but a, a happy normal. Uh, Michigan State University at eight. Uh, well, right now, I guess uh, is going to be uh, discussing a, what they call a personnel action. That personnel action is the appointment of Kevin Guskovitz, uh, the chancellor of University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, as the new president. And by the way, uh 
Teresa Woodruff, uh, the interim president, what a delightful, thoughtful, uh, strong leader I think she's been um, for a variety of reasons. She decided not to seek this or felt that she wasn't going to get it from this particular board of trustees. Uh, but hopefully it's a new beginning for, you know, one of the things that we, when we were up on campus, Jamie, for our WJR campus tour, just yeah. the amazing people up at Michigan State University. And they all have a stake in a better future through better leadership. Absolutely. And who gets the, the headlines is the, you know, fighting board of trustees. The football the, coach. and the, the Whatever he did, yeah. yeah. But the professors we met and the people just doing great work and trying to, you know, benefit the students. It's, it was very impressive. We had a really, I thought, thoughtful and productive conversation with um, Matt Colazar. If you weren't there for it, he's the state rep that's saying, look, we have seen, unfortunately, some horrific cases of child abuse. And in very limited cases, those abusers were homeschooling their children. And so that the abuse went undetected. They were using it as a way to cloak the horror they were inflicting on their child. We've got a, a, a caller this morning with some thoughts on that, because the question is, is is this intrusive to ask families to at least register their child? Barbara's in Farmington with some thoughts on that. Hi, Barbara. Good morning and, and uh, happy Friday. Oh, thank you. Uh, happy Friday to you as well. Um, the, the thought I have is most states, or some, I should say some, um, require you to enroll your child in school because it is a compulsory a, a compulsory law for your students to be, for the young to be educated in the country so that we don't um, raise a country full of uneducated children. So because what it sounds like you're saying is um, homeschooling is an excuse abusers use as opposed to homeschooled children get abused. And um, homeschooling kind of has a bad rap already. Um, really? So, I, what's that? I, I, the, the representative that we had on says, look, he thinks it's a fine thing. It's a it's a wonderful tradition. And we're only talking about a very few here. Oh, <laughs> right, right. But but you're right in that, you know, if, if someone's going to abuse their child, homeschooling them is a way to get away with it. Right. Uh, right. But if they're not enrolled, so registering, I guess, is the same thing as enrolling. Since it's a compulsory thing, I don't know why we wouldn't have enrolling anyway. So you don't see so this that, as a slippery slope? No, I do see it as a slippery slope because there is the big brother, you know, coming in, overreach of government, um, that whole thing. But if we already have, I think the stand is, we all, if we already have compulsory education from the age of six, you know, six to 16 where they can drop out, then... Um, it would follow suit that they should be enrolled or standardized testing, which is a different way of saying register your child so we can keep track of what you're doing with them. So um, it just, it's a slippery slope depending on how it's presented. And so that's, that's where I say um, I might take some of it into question because I don't think any, uh, I don't, I don't know, but I would think any, uh, well-meaning homeschool parents um, would enroll their child if that's part of the deal or use a standardized test because don't they somehow have to know you graduate or you get a GED or whatever mm -hmm. it is. I don't know that it's because the state has to know where your child is or what they're up to. It has to do more with making sure the education is a solid education um, because some states also even say, um, to be qualified to homeschool okay. your child. 
All right, Barbara, thank you. She's giving grace to what, what I, I was trying to get to with uh, Matt Colazar, and that is there's just a lack of trust there. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you want me to register my ch- child, but then what, what will you do with that registration once you find them? It's kind of like folks saying they don't want to register their guns because they think that then you're putting your name out there so that they can come confiscate them in the future. Others would say, why not register if it protects even one child? And and there and that is a compelling argument here, at least so that they're on someone's radar. And thanks for the call, Barbara. We uh, we appreciate that. Um, they're cutting a, a a shift at the Chrysler Stellantis plant on Mac Avenue. They're cutting a shift down at Toledo, uh, not because the vehicles aren't great or uh, wouldn't sell well, but because the state of California doesn't want them. <laughs> and uh, that the current emissions, uh, the, the emission standards in California, which are far stricter than the national standards, which that at some point needs to be reconciled, um, you know, it put, puts a blockade there. It, it's 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 going to be a problem that's going to need to be addressed. But that was the Stellantis CEO saying, oh, this is all about California. Right. We need to manage sales it produces to comply with California emissions regulations. Uh, on the sports side of things, Jim Harbaugh getting a pretty lucrative contract offer in some reports, $11 million a year, but with a stipulation that he not engage in any conversations with the NFL. Well, he's flirted with the NFL before, and I think Michigan is hoping to, to put a stop to that. They're offering him, according to multiple reports, five years, $55 million. It would make him the highest paid coach in the Big Ten, second highest paid college football coach behind Alabama's Nick Saban. Um the negotiation comes as, you know, he's set to lead the Michigan Wolverines to the third straight college football playoff. Mm-hmm. There's certainly been success there. This contract is not finalized, according to Yahoo Sports, nor has Harbaugh agreed to this. It's just that it's been offered by the university. Meantime, one of the biggest stars on the PGA Tour is going to live. We heard a lot of discussion about this there disappoints being a, me. It, me too. Because he's one of my he, favorite guys. And, we're talking uh, about John Rahm, the Masters champion. He has come out vociferously against live before and said it's a joke he doesn't like the format that he likes the competition of the pga well yesterday he signed with live and uh the contract is estimated to be somewhere between 300 million and 600 million and he told fox news yesterday guy why he did it the money is great obviously is wonderful but what i've said before is true i do not play golf for the money i play golf for the love of the game and for the love of golf but as a husband, as a father, and as a family man, I have a duty to my family to give them the best opportunities and the most amount of resources possible. And that's where that comes in, right? Obviously, it is a factor. It's certainly a factor. Well, okay. And it, but I thought there was a merger. I thought that there was an agreement that they wouldn't poach each other's players. Okay, so yeah. So some people are saying this is a leverage chip now. In case maybe these agree- this agreement with Liv has been falling apart, well, now we have Rom. I so think you it's have a declaration of failure, that the merger talks have broken down and it's not going anywhere. It could be an act of war also. If this yeah. merger isn't going to happen, then they have Rom. So it, it it's very interesting. Does this mean other players are going to? I hope not. Well, you see what Rory McIlroy said last night as well. He said, because he lost a friend here. Well, well no, he's saying change the rules yeah, for the exactly. Ryder Cup because he, he wants him to play. He said, European Tour is going to have to change the rules to get John Rahm on the Ryder Cup team. After all, all these years of saying, oh, no, we don't want these live guys on the Ryder Cup, now we can change well, the rules. But if it's John Rahm. Yeah. 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 And if he can win us, and if he can win us the Cup, then, yeah. Uh, 
We'll see where it shakes out. But it, it certainly, you know, it was a multi-billion dollar merger that uh, was supposed to happen, and it appears to be DOA. Uh, when we come back, uh, state of the county, specifically Macomb County, Mark Hackle coming up at uh, 819 here on JR Morning. Well, if you hear a squeak, a bang, a thump, uh, it's 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 you're not your house isn't haunted. Chances are your furnace has a problem, and it's one of the biggest indicators that it could need work. Also, if it's short cycling, where it comes on, goes off, comes on, goes off, all for short intervals, it's an indicator that you're you've got a furnace problem. Frequent repairs if your family keeps getting sick, and if you're paying a lot more for energy than you need to. That's an indication that you've got an inefficient furnace. If any of those issues are haunting you, well, call CNC Heating and Air Conditioning. For three quarters of a century, 75 years, this family has been making sure that families just like yours stay warm and comfortable in the winter months and cool during the summer. It's why they are one of the most trusted heating and cooling companies and referred by our inside-outside guys. So get that furnace tune-up. Take advantage of carrier cool cash savings if you need a new system, but get the tune-up. Call My Furnace, 1-800-MY-FURNACE. That's 800-693-8762. Get the survey that will determine exactly what your needs are, and then if your current system isn't up to the task, you can get a new carrier heating and cooling system and that carrier cool cash savings tomorrow. They can install it tomorrow. Visit cncheat.com cncheat.com carrier turn to the experts i think all of us to some degree whether it's our household or our personal um status we take stock at the end of the year and uh, a lot of our leadership in uh, different forms of government are doing that as well mark hackle doing some reflection and talking about uh, the state of the county and his 11th state of the county address and the macomb county executive joins us this morning mark hackle happy friday and uh, merry christmas early thank you guy good morning to you as well so one of the things, and you're facing it, uh, the state is trying to confront it with its population council, is drawing new economic talent to the county. Talk to me about what's happening there. Yeah, that's the biggest challenge. I mean, if you think about it, I'll just focus on Macomb County, but we're no different uh, than what I guess you would see around the region or probably around the state, and I dare say even around the country. But the reality is here in Macomb County, we have very low unemployment, you know, 3.9%. You know, people in the workforce were at historic highs. You know, 461,000 people are in our workforce. Yet, as we're having this conversation right now, there are 48,000 jobs available in Macomb County. So the question is, you got a lot of people there working, low unemployment. What's going to help us fill those jobs? It's trying to figure out how do we recruit talent, not only within, but uh, from outside, you know, whether it's out state or even across, you know, either across the, the waters here, trying to get people to want to, to migrate to southeast Michigan. Uh, Mark, a lot of drivers are going to be happy to see that the project on Mound Road wrapping up. Oh, amen. <laughs> Started a while back. But again, it's on budget, on time. So we're very fortunate with that. This one will be probably a, a when, when completed, um, you're going to see that this probably has the most technologically advanced uh, infrastructure. It's not just about the road itself, uh, the, the concrete that's being you know poured out there, uh, but from 696 all the way on 59 multiple lanes. I mean, for a massive project like this, the largest we have ever embarked upon uh, as a county department of roads, it was our lead to, on this particular project, uh, to have it done in time uh, as well as on budget was pretty remarkable. And we got funds from the federal level, state level, local level, and even the county level. So there's a lot of input. We're very fortunate. And yeah, before Christmas, uh, this thing will be opened. 
be very very glad to see that. You know, obviously the aesthetics. You know, you're going to see that. Uh, you know, there's going to be some landscaping that has to be done, but that'll be done next year. There are so many ways to uh, account for progress, and and one of them is just by looking on a micro level in the neighborhoods. We know that childcare is really a vexing problem for a lot of families. In a macro sense, it's a vexing problem for our economy because it's keeping people out of our workforce. Uh, you've got some major news with Head Start there. Yeah, we've made some changes, so we're we're going to impact at least a at least a thousand families. We're going to be helping out with uh, full day programs. You know, at first we were doing these half day programs. Uh, you know, really, we heard from the families. They're saying, you know what, we need to we need to restructure this. And so, having you know, had a mindful approach to the conversations with them, we thought, you know, this would be a better opportunity for us. And I think it's going to be satisfying a lot of support for people that really need that, uh, so they too can be part of the workforce and uh, obviously uh, taking care of some of these kids that you know sometimes uh, don't get the the benefits that many of us do. Uh, Mark, you talked about the prosperity of the county and how you have this giant budget and how you're using it, and, and you're very proud of that. Yeah, it's incredible. If you think about it, we got over a billion-dollar budget. Uh, you know, the past 13 years with this form of government, well, we've had you know, structurally balanced budgets. You know, was it based on gimmicks or, you know, hiding money or shuffling money around? So, you know, working with the Board of Commissioners, we're very fortunate. You know, most every one of our countywide elected officials, you know, they understand the totality of the budget. It's not just that, you know, simplistic, you know, I want, it's about me. Uh, everybody pitches in and understands, you know, you got to do more with less or do more with what you have. And so we're very fortunate to have been in a position where we're at. We have a very strong fund balance. It gives us the opportunity to pay for things in cash, as strange as that sounds. You know, we're, we're going to be paying for a $240 million jail in cash. We just paid for a Marine Division $10 million upgrade to an incredible facility out on Lake St. Clair, you know, for Sheriff Wickersham. Um, and, again, that was paid for in cash, and we're looking to do the same thing with our, our animal control facility. So, again, being mindful of, you know, your finances is important. That's our responsibility. You know, it's not one of those things they try to say, you know, yay for us, because that's what you're supposed to do. The public expects you to do that. But in so doing, we realize we have capital improvement projects beyond what, you know, the expectation are for our underground, our roads, uh, bridges. You know, so when you're talking about county facilities, we needed to make sure that we had money on hand to pay for those upgrades. You're, uh, you're enhancing the animal shelter, a lot of good things there. Uh, you, you talked about coming together uh, in attendance at your state of the county address was the Oakland County Executive and the Wayne County Executive. So we had the big three uh, there. Uh, give us just a very quick example, if you will, of how you guys are all rowing in the same direction. Well, we work together on many things. There were a lot of conversation we just recently had. You know, people think, you know, sometimes we just kind of, you know, meet up at events or functions and, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, glad hand at those things. That's not the reality. We have conversations, uh, you know, on a regular basis. In fact, we just resolved some issues we had with our medical examiner's office with the assistance of Oakland County. So we had to talk to, you know, the medical examiner's office there, work with their board and work with the executive, you know, Coulter, to try to figure out is there a way that they can help us. Uh, you know, with this bridge to get to a point where we wanted to get was taking and bringing this all in-house. And so they did. So right now they're providing a contractual service, doing some of our medical examiners, uh, you know, work that we're doing here that we're supposed to be doing. And uh, while that's happening, we're looking to hire some people to bring them in-house. And then the other conversations we're having right now are with the juvenile justice facility that sometimes gets lost in the conversation. You know, we take, you know, the responsibility of housing people from, you know, other counties in the thumb, in particular St. Clair County, Jeff Bohm and his folks. You know, it's kind of hard for them to have their own juvenile justice facility when you have very few kids. 
So we've kind of become a regional facility for the fo- folks up in the northern part of this, uh, the thumb area. But yet we also know that there are challenges within the juvenile justice system and uh, administrative rules and maybe even some laws uh, need to be changed. So we are meeting and having these conversations about what we think would be best suited to manage the care of those kids in those facilities. So there's a lot of ongoing conversations we have uh, as regional partners. And I'm very fortunate to have both of them, Warren, obviously, as Dave, as, as well as Dave. And even, you know, people forget about St. Clair County. You know, Jet Bohm, we have conversations quite a bit, too, um, especially with the shared <laughs> I, was, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to leave Jeff out. <laughs> no, never do. Never no. do. Uh, we, we appreciate it, Mark, and, and continued success in Macomb County. And as we get closer Thank to the you. holidays, if we don't see a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate it. The economy added 199,000 jobs in November. Uh, the unemployment rate falls, uh, I think, to 3.7%. That's the best of both worlds, uh, declining unemployment and also the jobs market cooling off a little bit, which was good for the battle against inflation. As if March wasn't crazy enough for our pal Tom Izzo, a new boss is going to hit town March 4th. Uh, the Michigan State University Board of Trustees unanimously confirming um, Kevin Guskovich from uh, UNC Chapel Hill as the new president. And on this fine Friday morning, we welcome in uh, WJR senior sports analyst Steve Courtney and the Michigan State University men's head basketball coach Tom Izzo. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning, Guy. Hello again, everyone. This conversation with Magnum TI brought to you by the hardworking men and women at Bill Brown Forward, forward down the field. The W's are stacking up. Disappointing loss for the winged wheelers last night, but they'll be just fine. My good friend Matt Garko and his team are stacking wins each day. Drive with the champions at Bill Brown Ford. Shop their True View inventory at BillBrownFord.com today. All right, the Spartans uh, got the Big Ten schedule underway this past Tuesday night at the Breslin Center. Uh, once again, uh, we found the Spartans trying to play a little bit of catch-up. Uh, mere minutes into this tilt, Spartans trailing 11-2. The deficit would be 11 at the half, uh, and they would uh, bite, scratch, and claw uh, to get to within three in the second half before uh, the Wisconsin Badgers would go on to a 70-57 win. Uh, we'll talk about it. Coach, how are you this morning? Well, I'm hanging in there. You know, it's uh, disappointing and uh I was disappointed. We're trying to overcome some things, uh, shooting, bad starts, few injuries. And, uh, you know, I still have all the faith and belief in this team. Uh, sooner or later, we're going to start shooting the ball better. But I am disappointed and uh, upset about uh, the way uh, probably the job I've done. Uh, you know, I've got to do a better job of making sure that we're in a position to uh, be successful and the starts are mind-boggling. The shooting's been a little mind-boggling to me compared to what we did last year with a similar group and did all summer. But, uh, you know, there's a long season left, and uh, Wisconsin is a very good team. And we uh, we got to figure it out quick because we go play a team that's 8-2 and two in uh, Nebraska. We uh, leave tomorrow. Aside from the uh, shooting was, uh, Coach, I, I, I know you. I know how you like going about your business, and I'm sure something else that uh, did not please you at all, the Badgers uh, coming through with 11 offensive boards, that translated to 19 points. Yeah, you know, and I again, I look at myself, and, uh, you know, we decided to play Malik Hall, I think, 18 minutes, and uh, he'd been sick, had been out since last week, five days, and, and, uh, you know, probably decisions that uh, 
on and gave me everything he could give me. It just wasn't uh, that, that hurt us inside. And, um, so, you know, uh, rebounding is uh, we've been rebounding you and we've got to do a better job that we're not as big as we've normally been. But I, I think we'll, uh, after a couple of days of practice, we'll figure out how to do a better job of that. Uh, Coach, to that point, how big is it to get Jackson Kohler back and get some more points from that five position? You know, I, I think that is very big uh, because he's a guy that can score inside, and we've been lacking that. Plus, he's another big body at six nine. You know, I think uh, getting him back, it's it's been a couple good days of practice with, um, uh, you know, Malik now that is finally out of the flu bug and. Uh, and I think the other one is Tyson Walker, who uh, both had lost a lot of weight and kind of was had a bad hip injury. But uh, I think we're as healthy as we've been. We'll get Kohler back in maybe a week or two, and that's going to be great. Coach, in the wake of the Wisconsin game, you said that you were going to have some tough conversations about toughness. Is it physical toughness or mental toughness that concerns you most? And, and what do you do when some of these young men get into the shooting hips? Yeah, you know, it's like the the, the golf yips, you know. It's, uh, it's nothing you can do but work on it. And, and Steve uh, will tell you that I know far too much about that. <laughs> yeah. But the mental and physical toughness are, are very, very important. Uh, and I think we'll do a better job of it as we get everybody back. But at the same time, uh, it's not a time for excuses. It's a time for results. And so I, again, I just look in the mirror and say, somehow when you lead a group, I got to do a better job of getting this team um, tougher, uh, both mentally and physically. But uh, I, I think that's going to happen. I think it will happen. And you know, shooting is a funny thing because when you're missing shots like we have, um, it affects the whole game. You know, it's nice to say, don't let your shooting affect your rebound. Don't let your shooting affect your defense. But it does, and uh, even though we've been pretty good defensively most of the time, um, we had a team that, boy, had a couple guys that weren't good shooters that made eight threes, and uh, that was, uh, you know, something that we have to deal with too. So we're going to get better, guys. It just better be sooner rather than later. Uh, Coach, Dickie V tweeted out that you left him a message, and this is the week for the Cancer Research, V Week for Cancer Research, and he tweeted out, your message and said, you said to him, you, my friend, have impacted the world. Now that's a legacy. Someday myself or a family member is going to live longer because of you. He was clearly touched by your sentiment because he tweeted it out. Oh, I didn't know that. But uh, at the same time, uh, I do have great appreciation. You know, Dick is a passionate basketball analyst and friend and coach and all those things. But he's taken his work with especially pediatric cancer to a level that is beyond belief, you know, the money he raises at his gala. I've been a part of that and, and have donated a lot to him. And, uh, and what he's done is just incredible. You know, he was of course in our state at one time at the university of Detroit and a little bit with the Pistons, but um, Dickie V is known for his voice and his, you know, his craziness on TV, but uh, the love and passion he has for mm. people that have been stricken with cancer is, is off the charts. And, of course, we all know he has, too. And so he's not only talking about things he's 
he's talking about things he's been through. So um, what a what a great leader for all of us. And it, it makes winning and losing a game a lot different than winning and losing a life. And I just wanted to thank him for that because uh, I think he is impacting the world, not just uh, not just a sport or a team or a school. Well said, Tom. The Big Ten grind, of course, continues. Uh, four-year Spartans come Sunday night in Nebraska against the 7-2 and two Cornhuskers. Uh, Coach Fred Hoiberg has them playing some ball. Uh, they've lost two straight coming off the 76-65 loss to Minnesota. Uh, but uh, here's a club that uh, is uh, capable of some good things. Yeah, they were playing very well, you know, and very well against Minnesota. Now they got beat by a great uh, Creighton team, but they have played exceptionally well, they've got a lot of really good transfers and uh, players, and sometimes that's been a little up and down, but uh, Fred's a good coach. They've got a good team, and it's an, it's an incredible place to play, guys. Uh, probably most of you haven't been there, but there'll be 14,000 people there, and it'll be absolutely insane. All right, Coach. Have a great weekend. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, get ready for that Tar Heel that's going to be coming your way uh, in, in, the, in the President's Suite come uh, come the beginning of March. Maybe you can lend him some green uh, merch. Uh, we appreciate your time, my friend. Well, it's going to be great to have Kevin with us. I talked to Roy Williams, and I guess he's a credible leader and a good guy. And so we're looking forward to it, starting a new era. And See if uh, the announcement of that can get my team motivated today. How's that? There you go. <laughs> Good. All Perfect. right. Well, you've got our team motivated anytime we talk with you. Thanks, Coach. Thanks, Steve. All right. Have a great day, fellas. And one of our favorite members of our team is at the other end of our line. After a very successful Radiothon, we will talk to Mitch Album next on JR Morning. My goodness, the sun is shining on this Friday morning. Beautiful out there. And did you shine on us and uh, our colleague Mitch Album and his team yesterday as they undertook the State Detroit Radiothon. And uh, the conclusion was one for the record books. Mitch uh, joins us live this morning. Congratulations, friend. Good morning. Thank you. Wow, two million dollars. Are you shocked? Uh yeah. Yeah. Very, very shocked. We went in thinking, well, you know, we set a crazy record last year at one point eight million and you know, at some point the ball has to come down. So don't be disappointed if it's one point six million, that's a lot of money, you know, something like that. And throughout the day we just the numbers were just a way ahead of where they were the year before, and, and where it was mostly ahead was um, individuals. You know, it wasn't, I mean, we, we had some crazy people give them crazy huge amounts of money. You know, Tom Gorris always at the end gives us this massive amount of money. Hugh Jackman gave us $50,000 because we sang two songs. I think he was paying us to stop singing at that <laughs> point. But, uh, but mostly it was just the $25, $10, whatever. They were just way ahead. So once again, Michigan... And Detroit just proves that even in, when the economic conditions are the worst, they give the most. And, you know, all I can say is thank you to everybody who's listening. Thank you to everybody who participated. Thank you to you, Guy, and your team who came out, you know, Jamie Lloyd, everybody who who just made the effort to be there. You know, it felt felt like it's become institutionalized, Guy. I don't know if you know what I mean. I don't mean like being locked away, but like after 12 years, felt like uh, it's moved into some kind of thing like, okay, I expect this to be here every year. You know, I trust it. I know it's going to be here next year, and I'm going to participate. And um, 
I'm happy to see that, you know, because that yeah. would be a nice legacy. Well, it's not. Yeah. In, uh, I don't know if you're right. I don't know if it's institutionalized or traditionalized. It's now become a beloved yeah. tradition. That's a better word. Institutionalized sounds like you have a yeah. straight jacket on. Well, people <laughs> trust that the money is going to the people who need it. And that's a credit to you. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it well, no, certainly it's speaks to the awareness to the, of our community. Yeah. And it's a credit to the, to the people who need it, who come out. You know, uh, when people, I always, we always kind of have a postmortem at the California Pizza Kitchen after it's done. They're nice <laughs> enough to stay open. The mall is completely closed. And uh, we try to, we always say, well, what was the best moment? And there were a lot of funny moments with celebrities, you know, things that were sick. Uh, the ones that stuck with me were like when uh, that veteran came on who had been homeless and, and then, uh, I asked him, saying, well, when you were at your lowest, you know, when you went to the Michigan Veteran Foundation, what did you need? Thinking he would say, you know, some caring or some therapy. And he said, clothes. Yeah. You know, like I didn't have any clothes. You know, or when we had this uh, sophomore from uh, from the College for Creative Studies come on and talk about how he wouldn't have been able to go to school if he didn't have this scholarship. And, and he was such a promising, bright, intelligent, creative force. You could see he's going to be something. And you think, well, how could this kid, like, wallow? With, with somewhere just because of money and so you know I, I remember those things and that's the stuff that keeps me going as much as the as much as you know Hugh Jackman or Alice Cooper or mm-hmm. Allen or anything like that Mitch we're so proud of you proud of the work you're doing and so grateful to our listeners who steep a step up year after year and you're right it's a grand tradition and we look forward to being there next year well you guys were uh, brave to come out that early and um uh, I don't know how you do it. You know, once once a year is enough for me. But uh, <laughs> you're, you know, just please, just please continue to be a part of it, and uh, please tell. Well, I guess up and tell your listeners <laughs> uh, how much we appreciate them and uh, everybody. Uh, yeah. A good holiday for a lot of needy people in our city and our area. Amen to that. Take care, Mitch. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, There's going to be something new if you're uh, walking, traveling around downtown Detroit. uh, Some really cool kiosks. And all of this is about is kind of preparing us for some big events coming up. Gina Cavalier is the Chief Community Impact Officer of the Downtown Detroit Partnership and Executive Director of Biz. Gina, good morning. Good morning. How are you today? We're great. You're unveiling something special. Quickly, tell us what what these are going to look like and how we can uh, benefit from them. Great. Well, I'm here at the corner of Jefferson and Chalmers near the Pink Poodle Dress Lounge and Busted Bra Shop, where we are kicking off a progressive ribbon cutting today for the digital information kiosks that the Downtown Detroit Partnership with the City of Detroit is installing citywide. So it's not just downtown. There will be kiosks in every neighborhood, um, excuse me, every council district in the City of Detroit. Um, They look like a giant iPad. Um, They're very interactive, and they're designed to encourage um, residents and visitors alike to explore the city. That's exciting. So this will total 28 across downtown Detroit and the surrounding neighborhoods. And what do you get on those? Uh, Public safety information? What else? Exactly. They have a a 911 call button that goes directly to the um, police dispatch. Um, There's also information about small businesses, social services, local events, and um, what's really interesting about the kiosks is that they're the opportunity to thread all of the information citywide together, but they'll also have information unique to each neighborhood so that 
the um, the community can post what they have going on in their own community. It kind of becomes the surrogate for the old utility pole uh, posters and things like that if you need it. <laughs> exactly. Well, well exactly that. I, I was just going to say, I think that's a great idea to get information across. And by now, we all know what an iPad does. And so people can walk up and figure it out. Exactly. And, and they also have a, a Wi-Fi hotspot there. So if you want to send the information directly to your phone, real-time transit information, how you get from one place to another, utilizing a combination of factors. Like it'll tell you how to get from the, the DDOT bus to the MoGo bike share, and you can send that right to your phone. Wow. So you can carry it. It's like putting it in your pocket. When you, um, where are these kiosks going to be located? And and I know we've got some that we're putting out there today. Uh, Ultimately, how many will be around? Ultimately, um, for these first two phases, we will have 30 installed. Um, Today, we're featuring four in the greater downtown. So like I said, we're starting here at Jefferson and Chalmers where um, our partner Jefferson East Inc. is hosting um, the kickoff. Next, we'll go to Midtown, where Midtown Detroit Inc. is our host partner. Then 24th in Bagley with Southwest Detroit Business Association. And finally ending in Corktown um, at the corner with the Corktown Business Association. And at each of these stops along the ribbon cutting, um, we're going to have some local treats. Um, at, at Jefferson and Chalmers, it's it's the... Um, it's donuts from the um, from the Yellow Light Donut Shop, and they have been procured using the Spirit Card, which is our digital e-gift card that can be used at small businesses citywide. So that's another great opportunity for people to support small businesses during the holiday season and shop local. And just real quickly, that small business you're near, Busted Bra Shop, it's wonderful, ladies. Check it out. All right. And, and well, and you had me at donuts. So there you go. Uh, Gina, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. And we want to remind you that in addition, uh, Eric Larson, Detroit Downtown Detroit Partnership, is going to be on Spotlight on the News with Chuck Stokes Sunday at 10 on WXYZ, along with Jamie Lloyd and I. Tune in for that. Spotlight on the News 10 on Sunday. Take care.